0: It is a delightful opportunity and a privilege indeed that God has given to each of us today to witness the greatness of His handiwork about us and to be able to gather in a peaceful opportunity in time like this to offer the homage, devotion, and worship unto the great and almighty God of heaven. Our Savior explained in Matthew 5 verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled." It is indeed a privilege to come together with those who have a desire to be immersed in the Word of God and to enjoy learning of it, and today we each are in that category as we strive to learn more about the text found in 1 Peter 3, verses 21 and 22. As you heard that read just a moment ago, and it is to that text that we'll turn throughout the course of the lesson this morning, we'll have opportunity to revisit a passage which has been the source of no small amount of difficulty through the years. With regard to some introductory thoughts, let's perhaps make note of these. It's easy to appreciate that since the inspired apostle makes reference to baptism in that passage, that it seems as though one should understand a bit about the placement of baptism with regard to its discussion in the Holy Scriptures. Many indeed have been those who have understood rather properly that baptism is an important, significant, and vital subject of New Testament import— But not only that, notice some of the reasons that might lead one to so appreciate the significance that baptism plays. Not the least of which might be the fact it's mentioned so many times. Seventy-seven times the Greek word baptizo, or some form of it, finds its placement in the sacred text of the 27 New Testament books. Seventy-seven times. And as one peruses the context in which those appear, It's easy to appreciate in far many of them that water is an associated matter. And furthermore, that very, very many of them directly describe salvation. Those alone would make the subject of baptism, wouldn't it? Easy enough to understand its importance. For in fact, if it involves salvation, we need to know about it to appreciate its message, what things are involved in it, and how in fact one must obey that which is commanded. It is to those matters this morning that I would ask you to notice. Some, however, have reached a different conclusion. There are others who look upon the sacred text and conclude that baptism is unimportant, that it seems not to relate to anything of vital matters here or hereafter. Those are very different positions, aren't they? Which one is the correct one? I would invite your attention with me this morning as we, with an open mind and an open Bible, Ask about this text and some others. What is the teaching of baptism? What specific thing does Peter say about it? With those things in mind as a bit of an introduction, let's then notice very carefully that passage again, laying some emphasis upon it. And I have chosen to do so by placing before you that which Brother Joy read earlier, not only in one translation, but in three of them. Let's look again at the King James translation of 1 Peter 3, verse number 21. As you read along with me there, the inspired writer said, "...the like figure whereunto even, baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ." And with that point, it rings so lovingly in our ears, and the power and majesty behind it seem evident, But just to add some additional emphasis to some of the phrases in it, look at how the American Standard translation, and if you're reading in it, you should find that this is the way that it reads. In the American Standard it reads, "...which also, after a true likeness, doth now save you, even baptism, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the interrogation of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." that American Standard translation of 1901. As surely as there's a great deal of similarity between the two, let's add perhaps the English Standard Version, the one at the very bottom, and listen to how this one reads and note particularly the clear way in which the verse seems to begin. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Indeed, as you and I hear each of them read, it's easy to see some correspondences. You'll notice with me in particular that last one seems to have borrowed some common and familiar language about dirt of the body. It not, does not relate to that. But it does open with that very clear statement, baptism now saves you. With all those things in mind, let's refer back to them one by one as we make some comments and remarks about this passage that has been put before us. These opening observations, it would be fair, should begin like this. This passage has been of such great difficulty for so many. As you peruse various commentaries and writings that discuss supposedly the teaching of this text, you will find an entire spectrum of approaches to it some on the far direction that assert the necessity of baptism, others that explain it away as being something that is only mentioned in an indirect fashion and that is not important. As you look at that entire spectrum, I might submit that it seems that all of those distinctions seem to vanish when one tries to arrange it in light of the various preconceptions that some men have. If you and I will let the Bible speak to itself and let the Bible be its own best commentary and let the Scripture state what it means, this text is not difficult. In fact, it's far from it. Far harder sentences in English you and I use likely every day and others understand what we mean. Is it not reasonable to say that God being infinite in power and majesty in mind, had He intended to give us a message... Does it not follow he could have put it in language that we could understand? Does it not follow he could have couched it in language that you and I could easily appreciate? Well, sure, that's what it means. God has given us a word we can understand. Ephesians 3 verse 4 reminds us that when Paul wrote to the Ephesian brethren, he said, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. When they read what Paul wrote, they were to have confidence in Paul's knowledge of what, that of which he spoke, and they could understand it. It is no different for us today, is it? The Holy Scriptures are given with this description. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It goes without saying the Word of God would not be nearly as powerful as the Scriptures proclaim it to be if we can't understand it. How could we use it to correct, to rebuke, and to exhort, and to teach us in matters of doctrine if we can't understand what the Almighty God of heaven has written? What Peter recorded for us in this text before us can be understood, and I'd submit to you today we'll piece that together and use this passage together with some others to understand in great majesty this matter of baptism. You'll notice in that second place, as you notice where the difficulty comes, we should begin with the previous verse. What is the context in which Peter is writing these things? Go back with me to verse 19, and let's read verses 19 and 20 that precede this one. "...by which also he went, that he is Christ, and preached unto the spirits in prison." which sometime were disobedient when the long-suffering of, long of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. It is now that we come to understand, rather directly, this context is tied clearly to events that took place in the days of Noah. We must thus return to Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 when the world had been overcome and enmeshed in iniquity and sin and ungodliness, when the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6 verse 5, God revealed to Noah he was bringing a destructive flood of waters upon the earth. This global flood was to wipe out all human flesh, not aboard that ark. In light of that matter, we notice a clear reference to water has taken place, the waters of the flood The placement of water had, in fact, a very careful and interesting usage by the apostle. As you notice with me, the issues concerning that water. In verse number 20, that brings us to notice the long-suffering character of God. God's long-suffering nature was expressed in verse 20. While the ark was preparing, during that interval of over a century when Noah and others were building that ark... It says that God's long-suffering nature was exhibited. How so? Because Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. Thus, as Noah was in preparation of that ark, he proclaimed the marvelous word of destruction that was about to come. He, in fact, set that forth in clear terms and tones. And unfortunately, there were no listening ears with a mindset to obey and to repent. For when the time of the flood came... Noah and his family went aboard the ark, and God shut the door. There were no other faithful to be found. And hence, we notice that God's long-suffering nature gave the opportunity for response. Noah preached to them, urged them, reproved them, and reminded them. And sadly enough, they did not respond as they should have done. In light of all of that, it's certainly fair to say that the salvation of those eight ever reminds us of the straight and narrow way that leads into life. Indeed, were there not few that found it on that occasion? The vastness of the human population then was such that of that number, only eight found themselves aboard that ark. With that as a backdrop and as the context for us, may I submit we seem exceedingly ready then to move into verse 21. Having mentioned Noah, the long-suffering nature of God, the character of the destructive waters of the flood, how does verse number 21 then begin for us? The King James again renders it, the like figure. The like figure. You and I understand that the usage of that word figure in this particular place seems to relate directly to what preceded. That is to say, what is now under discussion in verse 21 is a figure of what took place before. Let us see if that isn't, in fact, the case. The actual word, as it appears in the original text, is a pronoun. And as we appreciate a pronoun, that means it has an antecedent. There is something to which it refers, and that other something is the very basis for the meaning of the pronoun. What is the something? It's ever so clear, isn't it? The word water was the last word in verse 20. Water served as a figure, Peter said, for something. The water mentioned at the end of verse 20 was a figure of that which Peter is now beginning to discuss. As you appreciate it, Peter leaves us no doubt as to what it was that the water of the flood was a figure of. Notice again the reading. The like figure whereunto even what? Peter identifies what the figure is. It's baptism. In the same way, he says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It's easy to see there's a direct correspondence between the water to which he alluded in the days of the Noahic flood to the water that he's now discussing in the light of baptism. Baptism and water go together. How hard then is it to imagine that they shouldn't go together? And yet there are those in our world who try to dissociate water from baptism. They often make statements that baptism doesn't even need water. For instance, as other baptisms, like spirit baptism, baptisms in relation to other things that are mentioned in the Scriptures, and yet here when it comes to salvation, and Peter said, this baptism now saves you, It has to involve water. He said it involves water. It has a correspondence to it, and the power and mind is seen in that correspondence. There can be no mistaking it. And thus, as we look at some of the later comments, notice in other ways that that teaches us about other passages. Jesus, did He not say in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, "'Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature.'" He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. There the Lord made note of baptism, and He tied it inextricably to salvation. For He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So, no baptism, no salvation. No belief, no salvation. The word and joins those things together in a means of equal rank, so that they cannot be separated and achieve the object to which they point. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We thus appreciate that as the Lord made note of that baptism, and as Peter later tells us that salvation involves water, the baptism to which the Lord referred involved water. It couldn't have been any other way. As we notice in addition... What else did that water in the days of Noah accomplish? The figure seems to be presented in language like this. Think back with me to the nature of the flood of Noah's day. When the windows of heaven were opened and the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and remember it rained continuously for 40 days and 40 nights, we will appreciate that those destructive waters of the flood brought about the death of all not aboard that ark. But those very same waters, by the force that they, exi- that they were able to exert, lifted that ark to its safety. And those eight souls above it, by those very same destructive waters for those outside, were lifted to safety. Thus, that seems to be a very powerful note for this verse as well. Think of it, if you would, with me in this way. Those waters formed thus a very clear division, did they not? Just as surely as they brought about the death of those outside the ark, they were that which lifted the ark to safety. Thus, how does Peter use the same wording? To those who are baptized, those waters are waters of salvation, but to those who are disobedient and refuse to be baptized, they are overcome by the great flood of sin and are thus left in destruction by that choice that they've made. Notice the line of separation. Just as surely as those waters were say, a salvation to some in the, in the days of Noah and destructive to others, these waters of baptism are beautiful waters of salvation to those who submit kindly and obediently to that act of baptism. But notice to those who refuse and those who are not subjected to that baptism, notice that they're lost. They have not had their sins washed away, and thus they'll stand in judgment for having never submitted humbly to that act. And the very word will be to their, to their condemnation. Jesus again said, He that believeth and is baptized. If one leaves out the baptism, could it then be thought that he could be saved? The Lord left no hope for that. Isn't it amazing? Can we notice also that to those aboard the ark, they, in fact, saved so warmly by the power of obedience to what God had commanded. Those outside the ark were destroyed for their refusal to obey. Just as surely in regard to baptism, those who are in the church have been brought so by their submission to the act of baptism. In Acts chapter 2, we learn that. For in verse 41, they that gladly received His word were baptized. And the Lord added to them such as should be saved. Those that were baptized were being saved, and the Lord was adding them to His church. When it comes to membership in the Lord's church, that is not done by the vote of eldership, by the decision of membership. It isn't certainly done by a preacher. The Lord is the only one that can add people to His church. It belongs to Him. He owns it. He's the head of it. He, in fact, has all authority with respect to it. And hence, in Colossians 1.18, we read, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Thus, only Jesus can add anybody to His church. Lovingly, powerfully, amazingly, we find that that act, that is then that line of separation, a person might believe, might repent, might have confessed, but until that person is baptized, he has not been added to the church. He is not ranked among the the saints, among those that are saved, and to that point he is still outside that marvelous and powerful body of Christ. Those things help to teach us that there is much to be seen in this figure that links baptism to that which was the waters of the flood in the days of Noah. But even that isn't all. For Let's consider also to note this. Peter did exactly say, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It is an amazing thing to notice that that little adverb now does appear in this text and it has such force behind it. Because we're aware that now is a word that ties to the time nature of something. It says when a thing is accomplished, or when a given work is done, or when a state is reached. With regard to these individuals who had just been described in the days of Noah, Peter now transitions to talk very carefully about baptism. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us Peter's including himself. Notice, he too listed himself among those that were baptized, and what's more, as he discussed himself and others in his audience, these to whom he wrote the book of First Peter, he says, we have now been baptized and saved. The, that word now, as we've just noted, helps us appreciate that salvation is something that you and I can understand in its prestige and in its might even now. Oh, it's true indeed that we look forward to that day of judgment in which the faithful shall have been reckoned righteous and godly before him and will in fact be in a position to hear loving words like this, "'Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord.'" Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. But notice, there is a sense in which you and I can understand the need for salvation now. A moment ago, as Brother Vestal led us in prayer, he made note in that prayer about our concern for the lost. The lost we can now see in light of this verse the significance of that word. There are those who are lost. Not as though they are physically lost and don't know what road they're on or don't know to what building they are seeking or pursuing, but they're spiritually undone. Lost in a way that is, in fact, to be saved before God. And in that fashion, how tragic is their state. How regretful is that position? Because being lost, notice what he now says they've not submitted to. If those who are saved are the ones that have been baptized, that helps us appreciate that one of the things that may well be the problem, they have not submitted to baptism. For any number, perhaps, of excuses or other things in their life. The like figure whereinto even baptism doth also now save us. This text makes it abundantly clear, doesn't it? In that sentence, what's the subject? Baptism. What's the verb? Save. Take out the clauses that separate the subject and the predicate. Baptism saves. There's no way you and I can change what the Holy Spirit has written. Baptism is that which saves. He doesn't say that it is a life that one thinks is good, a life in which one tries to rely on the goodness of his parents, perhaps the kindness of a neighborhood. Baptism doth also now save us. We're reminded in passages like that one about that Ethiopian nobleman in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. Here we find not many chapters after that initial commandment concerning the events on Pentecost that here was Philip the evangelist, who at that time had been told by an angel to go into the way of the south to that Gaza road, and Philip obeyed precisely what the angel had commanded. No doubt at that point he perhaps wondered, Why did the angel send me here? And yet, not long thereafter, we find that a person, an Ethiopian eunuch, is returning from Jerusalem, heading to Ethiopia, having been there to worship. And as he is traveling, he's reading from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, that marvelous scroll of the suffering servant. It was at that point that the angel, or rather the Holy Spirit, told Philip, go and join yourself to the chariot. Philip again did as the Spirit bade him to do. And when he came and he heard the gentleman reading, he said, understandest thou what thou readest? And the eunuch said, how can I accept some man should guide me? And at that point, we well remember that Philip preached unto him Jesus. He took him from where he was, showed him that that suffering servant was by the nature of prophecy the very Son of God that not many years before had been crucified at Calvary. And we notice in the concourse of that lesson as they traveled along that southerly moving way, It was the eunuch who at this point spoke and said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? When Philip preached to that man Jesus, it's clear that one of the elements that was a part of that discussion was baptism. For the eunuch now said, Here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? Why was the eunuch so urgent to be baptized? Did it matter? Could he not wait till he returned to Ethiopia? Why was it so important to do it then? It was next, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Down into the water they went. And we next learn that Philip was called on his way for the work of the Lord elsewhere, but the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Verses 39 and 40 of Acts chapter 8. He was now rejoicing. Before he was confused... On that road, leaving Jerusalem, he was perplexed, uncertain. He didn't, in fact, know what it was that was being prophesied in the Old Testament. His confusion had turned into rejoicing. Why? He was a saved man now. He had been baptized into the Lord. His sins had been washed away. He was a member of the body of Christ, and all of eternity and its bliss hung before him. That man was now rejoicing. Isn't it lovely what baptism brings about? What a change it wrought in the life of that eunuch. That transition and that change so many in the sound of my voice this morning have also experienced. It might be there are some who have not. It's all of our desire and wish that you'll think urgently and very prodigiously about the moment. As you think about some other lessons now, the text said, you've been saved. As we think about what that means, notice perhaps another lesson that the Apostle Peter made note to emphasize. In that same verse it again says, The like figure wherein to even baptism the false will now save us. And then Peter explains, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It was important for him to note and for us to appreciate that baptism is not certain things, but it is other things. It is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. I have written that in language like this. Baptism is not a bath. I know that one could perhaps look upon that and see that it looks like a person's taking a bath. They don't completely undress, but it seems to have a lot of similarity. Peter is certain to remind us it is not merely washing away dirt off the body. That's not what baptism is about. It goes far deeper than that. It's far more profound than that. And notice, as you think about the placement of a passage like this one, those of Jewish background might have been a bit confused about that. Because wasn't it true that in the Old Testament era, the priests and others were commanded to wash in water before they entered the tabernacle? In fact, there was a laver full of water positioned between the door of the tabernacle and the altar of burnt offering. As a priest would thus take blood from the altar of burnt offering, go in and sprinkle it around the various furnishings, he had to wash in water. Notice, that ceremonial cleansing, that matter of usage of water like that, is not the kind of usage of water in baptism It's not as though we are just figuratively cleansing something. It's not as though it's washing dirt off the body. Again, he says it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Rather, we can notice in that the way in which baptism is set forth for us in this text and some others. Look at some of the ways that baptism is linked to other things. In Acts 18 verse 8, in that very complimentary statement, to those Corinthian brethren, Paul said, as he referred to them and as Luke wrote it, many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. Notice that baptism relates to hearing and it relates to believing. It didn't relate at all to using soap or some other such detergent to wash the body. Back in Acts the eighth chapter, verse 12, again, earlier on in that chapter, again, regarding Philip the evangelist, We notice there that as he preached in the Samaritan region, we find this statement about those individuals. It says that when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Notice with me how that the baptism came as they believed Philip's preaching concerning the nature of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. It had nothing to do with the filth of the flesh. And so it remains for us to appreciate that even today. When you and I are baptized, we understand there's a ba- there are bathtubs other places. This is a place in which our sins, those stains on the very character of our spiritual being, are taken away from us far better than any physical detergent could do. For this it depends on the blood of Christ. As Christ's blood, in fact, is contacted as we're baptized, we learn so powerfully how that Christ's blood can cleanse us from all sin. In 1 John 1, verse number 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Christ, inasmuch as you and I are able to contact it in the act of baptism there just as surely as we see how that those sins are thus forgiven, remitted, removed, and you and I are redeemed. That helps us see that this matter of baptism is that which Peter said now saves us. We do not contact the blood of Christ in our belief. We do not contact the blood of Christ in our repentance, though those things are required, and we do not contact the blood of Christ as we confess. The New Testament affirms for us only in baptism do we contact His blood. And in that way, His blood washes our sins away. In Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, the inspired Apostle Paul joins this chorus when he in fact there says, speaking about what occurs at the time of baptism and the lovely transition that happens in it, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. They put on Christ when they were baptized into him, not before and not without. Today, has anything changed? The same scriptures that were vital and truthful then, as New Testament passages, are descriptive of your state in mind before the great God of heaven. He hasn't changed his will. We are living in the last days and have been so since Acts, the second chapter. God has not changed that character of his demand it is in light of that coming that perhaps brings us to the last couple of points in our lesson this morning. And these points challenge us to see what closes verse number twenty one of First Peter chapter three. You might notice he did say it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but Peter, what is it? It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. The answer of a good conscience toward God. Isn't that a lovely statement? In other words, Peter helps us see that in order to have that proper and just conscience before God, baptism is a necessary accompaniment. It must be a part of that which brings one to have that good conscience before God. It can be no other way. If I thus refuse to be baptized, I am not able to appeal in good conscience to God For I have disobeyed his commandment. I have been unwilling to submit to that which he has declared as necessary. It is in matters like that. We can now see why the eunuch was so insistent. Here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? The answer of a good conscience. He knew to be right before God. He in sin needed to have those sins forgiven. He needed to be baptized. Is it that similar to what Paul in fact proceeded to do on that road to Damascus, when that bright light shone about him and he had the privilege of conversing with the Lord, he finally indeed made this statement. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Paul wasn't interested in asserting what he thought. God, what will you have me to do? Go into the city. It'll be told you there what you must do. And isn't it still amazing? He did not say what you should do, might do, could do. He said what well, you must do. And Ananias, sure enough, came to him in that city of Damascus and said, Ananias, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, verse 16. Now in light of hearing that, what was Paul's response? We must go to Galatians 1, verse 16 to hear his response. He said, Immediately. I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul didn't hesitate. You see, he too understood at that moment the impressive need and essentiality of baptism. Immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. Might we thus notice the answer of a good conscience toward God? That takes us, doesn't it, so interestingly, to that very last statement. The power of the resurrection of Christ is what provides the power for the act of baptism. We have seen somewhat in relation that mentioned previously in the lesson. Just as one is buried, that old man of sin is buried because it's now dead, raised to walk in unison of life is this child of God. And thus, this transition that takes place is in fact amazingly beautiful. The old man of sin buried because it's dead, This person is now a soldier in the army of God. This person who's now been baptized has been saved because of this statement we've just studied today. Baptism doth also now save us. He has complied with the terms of God's plan for obedience, God's plan for salvation, and this person is now saved. In light of comments like that one, can we not then see the amazing description of the new man that comes forth from that watery grave of baptism? For in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, know ye not, as he spoke there about baptism, he made notice in that very passage, know ye not that when we were baptized, we were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It is in a statement like that one, and it prompts us to ask, are you walking in newness of life? If you haven't been baptized, then you can't say yes to that. And furthermore, you cannot appeal in good conscience to God. Rather, baptism doth also now save us. In summary, in conclusion, I've listed these rather brief comments for us to consider as we close our lesson this Sunday morning. As we've looked at First Peter 3.21, We've been reminded of the importance of baptism and that one is saved through that act in the obedience that's involved in it. As the Christ's blood is contacted in that act, they wash the person's sins away. This very morning, have you been baptized? Have you believed Jesus to be the Son of God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed His sweet name as the Son of God? And then, have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If you have been then this lesson, I hope, will have been an encouragement to appreciate what occurred for you on that occasion. But if you have not been baptized, if you know that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for you, let today be the day in which you too are saved, your name is enrolled in the book of life, and you begin the walk with the Lord through the rest of your life, emanating in heaven itself if you live faithfully till death. Today, if we can assist one or more in your baptism or perhaps in rededicating your life to the cause of the Master, through prayer of the character of those public sins, we'd be happy to do either of those things. We would merely ask that you would let us know in what way we could be of assistance, even now while together we stand and while we sing.